and galaxies everywhere. How did the first stars and galaxies grow out of the primordial material? Uh, how did stars uh, get formed today? Uh, how about the planets? Where do they come from? And uh, could any of them possibly be like Earth? There were galaxies everywhere. Bienvenue and welcome to Cirque du Sound, a sonic trip brought to you by Cirque du Soleil, where we redefine the boundaries of creativity with some of today's most forward thinkers, doers, and creators. My name is Michel Aprise, I'm the creative guide at Cirque du Soleil, also the lucky director of Curios Cabinet des Curiosités and Drawn to Life. We have award-winning heart-stopping and mind-expanding shows and the ideas for them, the stories and everything come from everywhere. We are inspired by how creativity intersects with other disciplines, even ones that aren't traditionally viewed as creative, such as science, engineering and physics. We are fascinated by the amount of creativity that goes into practicing science, especially in exploring big concepts like time and space. And as artists, we know instinctively that expanding our curiosity will help us understand our universe and figure out theories that may help us unlock undiscovered ideas and worlds and make us closer to one another. And so today on the show, we're going to delve into this a little bit more. I'm going to be asking, how is space and time defined? How has curiosity played a role in creating and understanding space-time theories? And how will the images from the innovative James Webb Telescope change our perception of reality? I know I'm a circus guy, but don't worry, I'm bringing in an expert. Right now in the background, you're hearing the spellbinding music of our show Curios, Cabinet of Curiosities, and this music is composed by Raphael Beau. Curios is, uh, we, when we created that show, we wanted to expand the mind. And so this is why the main character is a seeker. And he discovers that in order to glimpse the marvels that lie just below the surface, we must first learn to close our eyes. Characters in the show are challenged to expand their perspectives, and so is the audience. When we created that show, we were very inspired by the second half of the 19th century. It's known as one of the most creative and forward-thinking periods in history. Just thinking that the, the railway system was invented that, at that time and expanded very, very fast. The telegraph was uh, making it possible for people to communicate with people in a very large distance. Also, the gramophone was making the voice of singers and speakers eternal. So Curios was created with inventiveness in mind and to spread the idea that nothing is impossible. The show asked the question, what if... By engaging our imagination and opening our minds, we could unlock the door to a world of wonders. And that's what we're going to explore today. Joining us on our journey today is someone whose head is constantly in the clouds and beyond, searching for answers at the frontiers of our universe. I'm so excited and honored to introduce Dr. John Mather, an American Nobel laureate, 
astrophysicist and cosmologist. He is the big brain behind the James Webb Telescope project at NASA. I am pinching myself. You cannot see this if you're just listening, but I'm pinching myself. I'm sure you've seen at home the stunning images from this new high-powered deep space telescope. Those jeweled galaxies that look like swirling diamonds crossed with melting stained glass windows. If you have not seen them yet, maybe you can check out the links in our show notes while you're listening. I'm incredibly excited for this conversation. Hello, Dr. John Mather. Welcome to Cirque Sound. Thank you for inviting me. This is going to be fun. Yes, it will. <laughs> Where are you right now on the planet? On this planet? I'm living in Hyattsville, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., ah. close to the main scientific laboratory of NASA at Goddard Space Flight Center. Wow, exciting. So you contributed so much to the world of science, like your Nobel Prize winning work on the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite, also known as COBE, C-O-B-E, that further established the Big Bang Theory on the origin of the universe. COBE was also said to be the starting point for cosmology as a precision science by the Nobel Prize Committee. So you've clearly had a lot of achievements and successes. And I have to ask, what keeps you motivated or inspired to search for more questions and problems to solve? Well, I am just curious. I want to know how everything works. I think I was born that way. But there is also a, a movement, a worldwide movement of people who want to do this together. Mm. So I work at NASA, and that's our job. We ask questions and build equipment to find answers. So that's my team sport. You make me think that, you, you know, like at SICK, we like to bring people from different countries together. And it's a really peace and love place. And, and even sometimes you have people from countries that are at war. And on our stage and in the backstage, people are, you know, together in peace. You're talking about people working together. Is there like, like big competitions between countries or are the scientists really working together to advance uh, the societies and our civilization's uh, understanding of things? In the domain of pure science, people do definitely work together across national boundaries hmm. because that's the best way to go. We have friends everywhere. We talk to each other. We write papers. We read each other's papers across the world. The competition isn't so much with each other as it is with discovering new knowledge. Wow, it's, it's so good to hear. Today on the show, I want us to look at the universe through a telescope and really analyze the significance of keeping our minds open when we explore ideas and theories, especially those that seem difficult to grasp, like time, space, and infinity. And something that we've been doing for a while is looking to the past to understand our present and future. With astrophysics, I find it fascinating that The, the farther you look into space, and it's not just about measuring the distance, you're watching the past happen right now. And to most of us, that, that sounds magical and maybe like impossible, but that you can exist in two periods of time. So my second question, how did curiosity and creativity help scientists understand or think about time? Mm, that's one of the most tricky questions. Because our understanding of time has changed over, mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. It used to be thought, until Einstein arrived, that time was a kind of absolute. That every place in the world and then every place in the universe had the same clock. And Einstein showed us, no, that's not true. So it was a shocking creative thought that he had to take. 
because, and he was forced into it by the measurements that we made. We measured that uh, clocks are not absolute, so better find another story. So you mentioned earlier that uh, this was happening at the end of the 19th century, mm-hmm. early 20th century, when telegraphs and the railroad systems had been invented, and he needed to understand how to synchronize clocks yep. across the entire railroad system. Mm-hmm. When I was doing research for Curious, I read that people started to be very precise about time at the invention of the railway system because, you know, he had to, to show up when the train was. So he was in the patent office and he was thinking about synchronizing clocks and he had an idea. And it turned out to be what grew into relativity theory. So I didn't know that. that was a creative thought driven by a practical application. In science, why is being curious so important? And, and I must say that you know, for those who just hear you, I have a camera and I can, I can see you. You just look like a child fascinated by the world. There's, there's, there's something in your eyes and your smile. You're, you're the embodiment of curiosity. So and why is it so important? Could science exist without curiosity? We are in a profession where this is rewarded, where the way you make progress is to think of something new or to find a mistake in something that someone has done before. So curiosity is basically the central force that makes us successful. Mm. Children are curious. Children want to know why and how about everything. But I think everyone wants to know how things work. And a scientist is a fortunate person who gets to keep on doing those things Mm -hmm. for a job, for a profession. And so here I am doing it. How were you when, if I may ask, when you were like five or seven, were you always asking questions to your parents? Um, I know all kids do that, but were you doing it more than us? I don't know about asking my parents, but I very quickly was asking books. Mm. I had books when I was six or seven or eight about great scientists and mathematicians. And I heard about infinity and I knew about Galileo and Darwin and the great discoveries that they made. And I thought, that is really exciting. Mm. I want to do that. You feel that early you felt a calling? I did. Oh, wow. Beautiful. I I think curiosity is really important when it comes to discovery and we do that in arts too. It's, it's a beautiful quality. We probably wouldn't be where we are if we didn't question what people might have considered impossible. I'm talking about circus people, but also uh, people in science. Of course, I, I can have you here and I talk about the James Webb Telescope. And I, I think being curious about what space looks like was one of the reasons why it was created. I, I would like to hear about this, this whole process Oh my goodness. Well, it's a long story. As soon as the Hubble telescope was launched, people were already planning, what do we do next? Because you could see the discoveries that Hubble was making, and you could see the discoveries Mm. that Hubble could not quite make because it didn't have the right capabilities. So a little book was published about five years later that says, please build us another telescope and do different things. They said, please build something that can look back in time by looking at things that are far, far, far away see things as they were when the universe was very young, because we'd like to know the entire sequence of events from what we call the Big Bang to now. How did the first stars and galaxies grow out of the primordial material? How did stars uh, get formed today? How about the planets? Where do they come from? And uh, could any of them possibly be like Earth, perhaps capable of hosting life? So those questions are still wide open. We've built the equipment they asked for, And now we're getting wonderful pictures and wonderful surprises from the equipment. And every day, more more discoveries are being published. And so are you working on the next iteration already? The next telescope? The next telescope, yeah. Yes, of course. 
That's what I like to do is to create new ways to observe things. So after, now that I've, I've worked with a team to build the Webb telescope, what's the next thing? Well, another telescope that's even more powerful in some different way. It can do something that you can't do with the Webb. You can't do with a Hubble. Uh, just you, you need something different. So the most challenging thing astronomers are pursuing now is how about Earth? Uh, ah. Are there Earths around other stars? Okay. And we imagine they surely must be, but we haven't seen them. We have seen lots of small planets around lots of small stars, and we have good reason to think that they're not like Earth, that they would have no atmosphere. Of course, we're going to find out soon if they do. But right now, the expectation is, no, that's not a good place to look for life. So please build a telescope that can be capable of seeing signs of life elsewhere. Hmm. So we can't visit with a robot to go to another star to pick up life. We can visit with a robot to see if something's on Mars or even a few other places in the solar system that are promising. But we can't go to another solar system except with light. So we can receive light and figure out what it means. So we would be looking for something like oxygen, which here on Earth only comes from living things, from plants and algae. Wouldn't be here at all, as far as we know, if, we were, if the Earth were not alive. So let's do that. Let's hunt for oxygen and other signs of life on another planet. So I hear you talking and I'm thinking like we're being complex and stuff. But is human just searching for another friend? You know, if we if we oh, obsessed if we obsessed yeah. obsessed by like finding life on another planet, why why do do we have this instinct like we we want to have a new friend? I think a lot of us want to have a new friend. On the other hand, astronomers tell us, well, it's too darn far to go have a real friend. <laughs> Even if we knew somebody was out there and we knew how to send them a signal, it would take a very long time to have a conversation. It would be generations. Even at the, even at the speed of light, uh, a radio or a light laser signal would take four years to reach the nearest star. And that's probably not alive, but you never know. So you're going to have to be very patient to have a conversation with your friends. <laughs> On the other hand, it's really an exciting question to answer how did life originate here? Because uh, we can't understand it. Uh, we imagined a century ago that it was so unlikely that it must have required divine intervention. And uh, scientists mostly agreed they couldn't see how it could possibly work. Hmm. And now the opinion has shifted, but we still don't know how it works. Still. Wow. So getting one observation of life somewhere else would change everything about how we understand our own origin. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I want to know, because we, we all had a huge reaction when we saw the images from the James Webb Telescope. What was your reaction the first time? Number one is relief, uh, because yeah. it works. Mm. It is so scary to build uh, something that takes you half a lifetime to, to construct. And what if it doesn't work? Oh, it is so scary. It was tremendous relief that it works so beautifully, and it's working perfectly now. It's working so well that we think it might last for 20, 25 years. Oh, wow. Which is much more than we were originally hoping for. Who, who were you with yeah. when you saw the first images? Because I guess it's, it was a very, um, very important moment. It, it was. We had a ceremonial event at the Space Telescope Science Institute where the engineers and some of the scientists who were working on focusing the telescope wow. came together to all see the same image at the same oh, moment. Oh, wow. And so we were there, and of course we had champagne because yeah. we were hoping it would be good. <laughs> um, and it was wonderful because, you, as you know, the telescope is not in focus when it's launched. It's all folded up into a very uh, small yeah. shape. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after you unfold it, uh, then you have to go through a process that takes a couple of months 
to get it set up so it gets a good sharp image. And the minute we got it, there were galaxies everywhere. <sighs> we were surrounded by galaxies in every picture. It's amazing. Huh? Wow. Could you sleep that well that night? I was I was very happy man. Yes. Yes, I slept. <laughs> how, how big is it, the team behind that project? Well, it took altogether 20,000 people from start to end. Wow. And there's something like 600 people were involved in uh, setting it up to use it after it was launched. Wow. And uh, now we have thousands of astronomers around the world are using it. We're taking pictures for them and they're writing papers about the, the pictures. And so it's an, an immense effort. It's so worth it. Quite often when people think of science or theories, they think of equations and numbers, not stories, creativity and philosophy. Yet science is always trying to push back the boundaries that are set in place. And to do that, they constantly have to kick the tires of established theories. For example, both verifying and falsifying are very important parts of science. And I find that such a creative way of thinking. It constantly encourages people to push the boundaries of what they know and to always stay curious and critical about, about everything. It reminds me a bit of when we are developing a new storyline, a new concept at Soleil. We run it through a really intense development process to ensure that the show concept itself holds water. So we, we, we show it to our peers And, and at each stage, whenever you bring more people, like when the artists come in, everybody's testing the, the, the falsifiability of it. And, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a great process, and I don't know a better one. Also because we want our shows to speak to everybody, so you need the input of everybody. Yeah, science is like that too, of course. Um, we're thrilled when we have a new idea, and then uh, we publish it, we talk to our friends, and by and by we might find out that we were wrong. You publish things sometimes and people just say, no, this is wrong. It happens yeah, a lot. We make mistakes. We deceive ourselves. Nature deceives us. We make mistakes in the computer programs. There are so many ways to be wrong that we are constantly checking our work. Wow. So it's a motivation to be accurate and scrupulous and not to cut any corners to make sure that we get the right answer if possible. Because for, if you're a scientist, your reputation depends on having the truth in your hands not just on being first mm -hmm. or something. So we do need to be accurate as well as eager. I'm glad to know that it's, it's present, that, that way of working. Yeah, it's been that way for a long time. A If long you read time, yeah. Darwin's Origin of Species, mm -hmm. uh, it's full of conversations that he's having with other people ah. as he's gathering his evidence and thinking about whether he's right or not. So even a century and a half ago, people were doing the equivalent of the internet with writing letters and talking to people. Yeah. And so it's been true forever. Wow. That's how we make progress. It's amazing. Theories and ideas are constantly evolving as new technology and new questions allows new data to be gathered. So how did this expanded view, thanks to the James Webb Telescope, change your view of the universe? I've been very pleased to see that we had some wrong predictions about the early universe in particular. Really? We have uh, ways to calculate and simulate what the early universe was like. Because we measured what it was like when it was very, very young with the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite and two more satellites that came after it. And so we said to ourselves, we should be able to predict how the first galaxies will grow. And we did. But the predictions are not in accord with observations. Mm. So the early galaxies are bigger and brighter 
and formed earlier than we were expecting. So we don't know what's different yet because we've just made these discoveries. So we will see soon enough that there was a mistake made somewhere, but we don't know where it is yet. I, I want to ask you about intuition because in art, we, we use our intuition a lot. And, uh, and intuition is, 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 is both truth and it, it doesn't have to be true. It's, 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 it's intuition. So it leads us to in many places. How, how do you integrate your intuition in your work? And, and do you sometimes try not to follow it? It's like, what's your relationship with intuition? I think scientists are very intuitive because we like to build mental models. We have pictures in our minds okay. and stories that we tell about how something works way out there. Then we think we're right because we got a good story. Then we can be led into error because we are so enchanted with our story. So that's why we have to also go measure things and observe things and see whether the story predicts the right answers. Intuition tells us where to look, but sometimes we are too trusting of our own belief. Mm -hmm. so we have to go look. If I write another book, it'll be called I Have to Measure. Ah, I love that. Mm. So what is your intuition about life on another planet? Ah, I feel pretty confident that there is life in many places. Evidence from planet Earth is that as soon as there was an ocean, there is uh, signs of life. We have that from the fossil record, but life of the microscopic sort. So it took most of the history of the universe for us to turn up. Mm. So life like us is probably pretty rare. On the other hand, the universe is so large that rare doesn't mean zero. Yeah, yeah. Rare just means it's far away. So we're working on the next thing, which is to see, are there places that are a lot like Earth? That is to say, Earth size, Earth temperature, orbiting a star like the sun with oxygen. That's sort of the next objective to find places like that and see are they common or are they rare. Hmm. And, you know, talking about uh, the James uh, Webb Telescope, still, how did this expanded view, uh, thanks to that telescope, change your view? My view of what we can accomplish has changed a lot. Hmm. Because wow. when we started, uh, we didn't know we could do this mission. People laughed at me when I said we were going to do this project. Really? Because Why? Because it was too hard. Too hard. It was much too hard. What was hard in it? We had to invent 10 different new technologies to be able to build this observatory. We had to have better mirrors. We had to have better detectors. We had to get little amplifiers that would work at extremely low temperatures. Mm. Had to get something that would cool off one of the instruments to a temperature of 7 Kelvin, 7 degrees above absolute zero. Um, we had to learn how to unfold the telescope. We had to learn how to focus it after launch. There were so many things we did not know how to do. That's exciting. Um, so it was, it was a huge accomplishment, and it was a cr very creative and intuitive path that we took. And by the way, we don't just say, I know how to do it. We say, we need to do this, and we ask the entire world for proposals. Hmm. Okay, how would you do it? Oh, how would you do it? How would you do it? Send me a proposal and explain to me oh, yeah, why that's how it happens? we should ask you to do that. Hmm. Yeah, we do not say, I know how to do it. Yeah. We ask, how do you do it? And somebody answers. Wow, it's fascinating because at Centre Soleil, you know, we want to always like make the impossible possible. And it's the central actually in the show Curios. And uh, I love the way you just say that. It. It's like, uh, we don't know how to do it, but we want to do it. I think there's, there's an inspiration here that how we can open more the discussion to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. What, what are we learning about the idea of infinity as we peer deeper now into space? Yeah. 
So infinity is an interesting thing because people talk about it as though it was a thing. But uh, the word itself means without end, mm -hmm. without limit. Mm -hmm. So um, you can't get there because by definition you can't. Yeah. So we talk about infinity as a thing you should understand, but it really is an interesting surprise. The ancient Greeks knew about the idea that there could be uh, no largest possible number. You know, whatever number you think of, there's always a bigger one than that. And you can prove it. Just add one to the number you said was the biggest. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously you were <laughs> wrong, so there's no biggest number. We have the same concern about space and time. If you imagine you're somewhere way over there, can you go any farther? Well, why not? So space seems to be unlimited. Uh, that is to say infinite in space. We don't picture, and we don't see any sign in observation that there's an end to space. We have a similar question going back in time. You go back in time, you can't go to an end. You can imagine yourself back to when the universe was very young, and you can imagine back about 13.8 billion years. And when you imagine back that far, then you say, well, the universe was very hot, very dense, very compressed. And then eventually you run out of imagination. You say, what could there be there before that? And we don't know. So, of course, we are not without ingenuity and intuition. We make up stories and draw, draw calculations and formulas and say, well, maybe it was like this. Uh, but then we're getting back to those things which you were talking about where we can't necessarily know the answer. Maybe we can't measure anything that tells us. Mm -hmm. It's good not to have an answer. In, in theater, you like to have the mystery. Theater has this, is this ritual that like always comprises something yeah. that you do not understand. Yeah. So, but before the Big Bang, what happened? Before the Big Bang, we actually don't know what it means. When you imagine back in time, closer and closer to the earliest moments of the universe, you can't quite get past it unless you have a story about how could this extremely dense material have come from something else. So we don't have a good story. We have a lot of ideas, but none of them can be proven. So one idea is obviously, well, what if the universe is bouncing? That it was uh, originally um, much bigger and then it collapsed and it bounced and came back out again. So that's the bouncing universe story hmm. that gives you an idea of what, what was there before what we call the Big Bang. And there might be many others. Uh, we have theories that say there's a force called inflation, which causes the expansion. And uh, in that theory, it's possible to have many universes erupting from some generic material that we don't really know. But um, maybe there are many universes and they're all expanding. And maybe uh, they're not all expanding. Maybe ours is special in some way. So this is uh, <laughs> something that scientists speculate about. Uh, and right now, I'm not aware of any way you could test no. this question. Wow. Of course, we're interested. If you've got an idea, if anybody has an idea, then of course we'll look. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, you have uh, an idea, just please <laughs> send it and we'll yeah. share it with everybody. What yeah. is, John, what is, what is science to you? For me, science is an, a sort of organized a community process of looking for truth about things, uh, information you can use to do something. So that means measure, understand, calculate, make mental models, try to extract general properties of the universe that we see around us. When you were a kid, who were your most inspiring scientific uh, personalities? Oh, I loved reading about Darwin and Galileo when I was young. 
There was also an American scientist named George Washington Carver, who was a descendant of slaves, and he explored mm. how you could make uh, better food uh, out of peanuts. And uh, he developed a lot of uh, basic knowledge for agriculture at a time when it was very difficult for him. 1860, 1880, something like that, a long time ago. Anyway, I had a child's book about him that wow. was quite inspiring. In a minute, I'm going to continue this conversation with Nobel laureate, American astrophysicist and cosmologist John Mather. A conversation that explores how science is defined and how curiosity plays a role in understanding and creating theories of time and space. Fans go first. Whether it's early access to seasonal deals or pre-sales, pick your tickets before everybody else. Sign up for Clubstick today and you'll be the first to hear about access to special events, pre-sales and discounts. Take a look behind the curtain and enjoy up-to-date news on all things Cirque du Soleil, including shows, artists and latest innovations. Visit CirqueDuSoleil.com to subscribe. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to Cirque du Sound, a brand new podcast from Cirque du Soleil, looking at the interdisciplinary roots of creativity. My name is Michel Aprise. If you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll tell your friends about us and leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. Dr. Mather, we've talked a lot about how being creative and curious plays a role in science and helping us understand it. But I also wanted to talk about how infinite science feels and the influence that other creative mediums have on science. So the, the world has always created art forms such as images, stories, and songs, and now movies that explore what future innovations we think will create and the discovery of other worlds and life beyond what we know. There's a whole genre of it now in science fiction. But even beyond that one genre, there's so much art around us that influences and challenges the way we think and our beliefs. And just like science, humans are always shifting, changing, evolving, and creating. So my next question, how have other creative mediums, such as poetry, movies, books, or even humor, influenced innovations that we see today? How, how have you personally been influenced by them? When I was a young person, I read a lot of science fiction stories. Uh -huh. And of course, okay. I was interested to know, were they telling us anything? Eventually, it became obvious they're really telling us about human beings yeah. and how we think. But they throw in a little sprinkling of things that uh, might be technically possible sometime. So we had space travel of all sorts. Most of it's impossible, as far as we can tell, mm -hmm. because technically we can't go to those other planets. It's too far. And we don't have in anti-gravity and all the other things that show up in the science fiction stories. But there are always interesting things that are still on my mind. There was a uh, trilogy called the Foundation Trilogy that Isaac Asimov wrote. Yep. In that trilogy, there's a story about a mathematician who thinks he understands the laws of psychohistory. And as far as I can tell, there are no such laws. Yep. But at yep. any rate, he thought there might be. And so he worked out that if nobody did anything about it, this entire civilization of the galaxy would collapse. Okay, so that's an interesting question. Are there any such things as laws of psychohistory? Of course, it's also a great adventure story because people are always trying to dodge the inevitable and uh, create a foundation mm -hmm. that will avoid this great collapse. 
Anyway, it was a remarkable story, and I've had it in my mind for a long time. Oh, wow. Uh, other things that have been stuck in my mind, when I was about six, my father told me that humans and living things are made out of cells. And in those cells are chromosomes, which somehow control your fate. Mm. Nobody knows then or now how it works. We're just beginning to get the tiniest hint. Mm -hmm. So this was a bedtime story for my dad when I was six. Was your dad a scientist? My dad was a scientist. He studied the genetics of dairy cows. Oh, wow. So it was the beginnings of technology. Uh, This is uh, 70 years ago he told me this story. So we didn't have most of the things we have today. We didn't even know yet about the double helix. But at any rate, knowing that your fate is determined by something that you can't see or understand, and it's completely random in some way, it makes you think about philosophy and what what is the nature of society and how should we treat each other? Uh, well, some of us are born to be strong and athletic, and some of us are not. Some of us seem to be, have a talent for music like Mozart, And then you say, well, what about what happens if you just really, really want to do something? Can you develop those kinds of talents? Mm -hmm. So I grew up thinking, well, I don't know if I'm born with anything particular, but I sure am interested. And so I spent my nights and days and weekends thinking about science and math as a young person. So this comes not exactly to the artistic creativity, but it's it's a philosophical creativity. Do you think that... You can affect the future and your own abilities by really working at something. It's pretty obvious that mm-hmm. an athlete practices. Mm-hmm. What about a scientist or a mathematician? What do we do? We just think and work at our problems until somehow we solve them. But the mental gymnastics too. Yeah. And and were, were you reading uh, Jules Verne's uh, books? I did, of course. Uh, like very I did young. Not read Jules Verne. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, even got recently to watch the movies, some of the older movies about him. Now, there's a a book I haven't read yet that was discovered in a trunk about a decade ago uh, and was published uh, long after he died. But he anticipated a great many of the inventions that we would have today, including uh, telecommunications, Mm -hmm. things that could not have been imagined, really, when he wrote the book. Submarines? He was, yeah, of course he had the submarine, the Nautilus, in his book, a different book. But at any rate... uh, very imaginative fellow. He had uh, a, um, a trip to the moon using a gigantic cannon to get us there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we'll skip over the problem that it would kill you to be on that uh, on that <laughs> mission. And, uh, and imagine what. He, uh, but imagine travel to the moon. And uh, you might be surprised to hear that we actually have built cannons to launch satellites, and it's not very useful, mm-hmm. but it can be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen images. So I was wondering how, how you think that James Webb's telescope is changing how people perceive reality. You know, like mm-hmm. we live a bit in a dark age and, and I saw like in a, such a, a beautiful reaction from people when the first images were released. So do you think about that a lot? The, the impact on like, every, like everyday life of, of people, like knowing that, you know, you just opened the curtains to so, so much beauty and, and expanded our, 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 our view of the universe. How, how do you feel like your social impact on, on people's optimism or perception yeah. about beauty, for example? I, I'm really thrilled to see how many people love our pictures because uh, they do tell us that uh, there's a mystery out there and how we got here is really a fascinating story and we're working on it. So we're beginning to tell people more about our own origin story and they're just beautiful. 
To me, they're just beautiful, the way that the colors have turned out. And and they're meaningful to astronomers, too. It's not just uh, we played with the colors until they look pretty. They actually mean something to us uh, astronomers. And from those pictures, we tell you the story. How do the stars grow? How do the planets grow? Mm. What's in them? What are the chemistry of those little things way out there? So uh, eventually we can draw you a lot more that tells the story of our own history. So to me, that's inspiring. And, I, and I'm just glad that other people think that pictures are pretty because they want to have them on the wall. So they're everywhere. It happened, you know, before when we got the picture of Earth as seen from the Apollo. Yes. Uh, rising over the surface of the moon. Yes. Uh, that went everywhere. And it changed our picture of ourselves and uh, helped us realize that Earth is a special spot. It's a little tiny ball. And, uh, and we can't actually go anywhere else mm-hmm, easily mm-hmm. or ever. Uh, so please take care of it. People started to think more about that. So that's part of our work. It's amazing. And the power of one image. Yes, it helps us with our imagination and to see our actual place. People could see that the Earth is small and that we live on the very thin skin over the surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we got to realize how precious it is. So why do you think people shy away from science despite it being such a creative field? How do you reintroduce young adults to it? Is there a common misconception that people have about studying science or working in that field? I think people have been uh, misled about science because some mm. people think that science is a body of knowledge and that it's too hard to understand, so we're going to stop. And I think it's a process of discovery and that we're all curious. And so we can all participate in the curiosity about how things work. So I think when a child uh, picks up a rock to look under to, under it to see who's living under a rock, that's the beginning of science. Oh my God, you, you, so, you're so right. I have two four years old. I really relate to when, like, my daughter Ella. She 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 loves in the summertime. She will lift all the rocks. She's fascinated by insects. And uh, I always let her go. You know, she's gonna wash her hands after. You know, and she's not gonna eat the the insects. But I saw people going like, "Oh no, no, you shouldn't do that. Stop being the curiosity yeah. there." And I, yes. and I'm it's, I'm very careful to to always always let them go where their curiosity leads yes. them. Otherwise, I mean, because maybe she's gonna be an amazing scientist. Actually, I think she Whoa, she could knows? be. Yeah. So I think science is about discovering things yourself a lot. Working with people to discover things. And it's not about reading a book full of facts. So uh, I think science instruction would be uh, best done by here, play with these things, see what you can see, see what you can discover. Here's a microscope. Can you see something with it? Here's a telescope. What can you see with it? Mm. Um, here's a, here's something to watch. How about watching this animal grow? How about watching this plant grow? There's so much to discover, so much to know. And, um, and the pleasure is in the discovery. So much so. Wow. You know, um, in a way, the way I pictured modern science is uh, we're working on the infinite crossword puzzle. The crossword puzzle that goes in all directions. There's just an unlimited number of unknown little squares. And we, uh, as scientists, we work on one square at a time. Mm. Sometimes we get a whole word at once. And then we go on to the next thing that we don't know about. So we gradually are gradually working out the puzzle of the universe. And what could be more exciting than that? Wow. And I, I hear you say those words with a big smile. I think you're a very yeah. optimistic man. Yeah, I am. I believe that scientists who, who like explore lives and the mysteries, you look very happy. 
you look like you're in a paradise. Yeah. It's beautiful to see you. One astronaut is very famous for saying, when you're born, you go to heaven. Mm. In other words, this is it. Oh, yeah. So with all of the things that we like and don't like about our universe around us and the conflict and combat and love and affection that we all have, this is it. Might as well enjoy it. Ah, I have shivers. It's curious. Cabinet Curiosity is it's not that I want to plug the show, but it's exactly about that. Because this, the Chercheur Secret tries to go to the impos- develop the possible impossible, but it stays there. It's machine mal- malfunctions, and it's people from, we, I, I call it the Curiosistan, a place where everybody's curious. They come in his world and make him, they make him see that what he was looking for is there. It just needs to change this perspective and to to look at things with with like a o- openness, and you will see that it's all there. I, I want to thank yeah. John Mather for joining us today, John. It's been such an enlightening conversation, and we could continue for hours. You really <laughs> stopped time, and it was so such a, a pleasure to be sharing this episode with you. So thank you so very much. Okay, Michelle, a pleasure. Bye bye now. Dr. John Mather, out of this world, I hope you feel as creatively inspired as I do by that conversation. Once again, to check out the beautiful photos from the James Webb Telescope, take a look at the link in the show notes for this episode. To the listeners, I want to thank you for your presence. Join us for each episode as we delve into the themes and ideas that underpin Sigurdsson's shows. Learn more about the roots of creativity and how to keep your eyes, mind, and heart open to new sources of creative inspiration. And remember, it can come from anywhere and anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Sick to Sound. I am Michel Apis. À la prochaine. Cirque du Sound is produced by Cirque du Soleil with technical and story production by Char Audio. If you like what you heard today on Cirque du Sound, please subscribe, comment, and leave a review. 